The irony of the pandemic is people now know what an epidemiologist is. Actually, over 100 million Americans own wearables. Oysters don't want to be open. I'm Richard Gerhart. And I'm Elizabeth Gerhart. You've just heard some great tidbits from our show. Stay tuned for the rest. Want to patent your invention? The chance is near. You've given it heart. Now get it in gear. It's Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. I'm Richard Gearhart, founder of Gearhart Law, a firm specializing in patents, trademarks, and copyrights. I'm Elizabeth Gearhart, not an attorney, but I work at Gearhart Law doing the marketing and I have my own startup. Welcome to Passage to Profit, the road to entrepreneurship, where we talk with entrepreneurs, small businesses, and discuss the intellectual property that helps them flourish. And we have a really, really special guest. I've only known this man for a short period of time but he mixes science and charm like nobody else can. Brian Strom, Chancellor of Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences. And boy, do we have a show for you with him. And then we have two presenters with really great products. So I just have to say a little bit about Eric Korm's invention. It's an app. If you work out and you work out till you kill yourself and you can't work out for two days after, you need his app. And then we have John Nicholas. If you are an oyster eater or know anybody who likes oysters, and these would make great gifts too. He has got oyster shuckers and a story behind it. And if you go to his website, it's amazing. I'm not going to say any more because we'll get into it during the show. But before we get to our distinguished guests, it's time for IP in the news. And I know you've all been waiting to hear this, but at last, Sherlock Holmes copyrights have expired. So the way it works is you get a copyright for your life plus 75 years. And then after that, it enters the public domain and anybody can use it. So I could record a song called The Hound of the Baskervilles then? <laughs> <laughs> Not that anybody would want to hear me sing. <laughs> I think it could really get out there. No, actually, there's a lot of other famous works that are going off copyright right now. I'll just mention a few of them. Der Steppenwolf by uh, Hermann Hesse and America by Franz Kafka. How about some songs? Funny Face and It's Wonderful by Ira Gershwin and George Gershwin. And I Scream, You Scream we all scream for ice cream and then finally putting on the ritz all of these songs are going off copyright now winnie the pooh went off copyright and people took winnie the pooh and did very twisted and strange things with it so yeah they, they turned him into a serial killer right it was a horror thing so i'm hoping that it's a little this gets a little better treatment anyway time for richard's roundtable and i'd like to ask our guests what they think about all of this new stuff coming off copyright. Brian, what do you think about all this stuff? Some of the stuff I didn't know was on copyright. I remember hearing my kids singing acapella groups using some of those same songs. So Eric, what do you have to say about all of this? I think with the uh, chat GPT, open AI, a lot of these copywritten pieces are now going to be able to be reused in a way that's non-plagiarized. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to check this out, but it was founded by Elon Musk in 2015 to make artificial intelligence open to the public. They raised a ton of funding. Microsoft put a ton of money and they just released ChatGPT a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago. But the capabilities of using artificial intelligence and you can feed it copy and have it spit back out to you in a new form. So you could take some of these songs and turn them into your own jingles for your own company and there'd be no copyright infringement. You should check it out. It is wild. I mean, it is absolutely wild what you're able to do. They used reinforcement learning to create this and it's going to change marketing forever. And I really think there's, there's going to be some, there's going to have to be some thought around the IP that's created. Cause you could literally go in and be like, Hey, I want you to create an app that makes jingles and it will spit out the code. And then I want you to create a UI 
Like yeah. who owns that property now? So that's actually a pretty big debate in intellectual property world right now about yeah. inventorship and ownership of AI created stuff. Anyway, Kenya. I think this is awesome. I And when you said putting on the Ritz, that was actually a pretty popular song. I feel like I heard it in a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. So yeah. if that's going to become available, like I definitely could hear a remix or maybe in a hip hop song somewhere. Who knows? What is old is new again, mm -hmm. right? John, what do you think? I think the patent coverage should actually be longer. I think there should be some kind of phase where it transitions into a licensing agreement at a certain rate but uh, the ownership still covers for a longer period of time. You sound like you have patents. <laughs> yeah. Well, he happens to be a Gearheart Law client, right? So, you know, it is kind of amazing that copyright, you have a copyright until you're dead. And then 75 years later, your heirs can still enforce that copyright. Right. So why can't patents be a little bit longer? I agree with John. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting approach that in some countries, they do have for certain types of technologies, compulsory licenses, but the term of the patent is still 20 years. So now I'd like to introduce Brian Strom. He's the chancellor of Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences, RBHS, and the Executive Vice President for Health Affairs at Rutgers University. He's also a frequent speaker and advisor to the NIH, the FDA, the CDC, the Joint Commission, and foreign governments and most major pharmaceutical manufacturers. And it actually said this in his bio, so I included it, it says many law firms. So he advises many law firms. <laughs> and if you've watched any of uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy's briefings during COVID crisis, you would have seen Brian standing right behind him on the podium. He was New Jersey's top health research resource during the pandemic. And now as Chancellor of Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences, he oversees a huge organization, which includes the schools of medicine, dentistry, nursing, pharmacy, public health, the Aging Institute, the Brain Health Institute, the Occupational Health Institute, the Institute for Translational Medicine and Science, and not to mention the Cancer Institute of New Jersey, all of which are amazing academic and research organizations. I just have a question. When do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> if, 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 if you talk to the people around me, they ask the same question, and they, they wish I had slept longer. <laughs> but like to go to medical school, you got to be kind of smart to teach at a medical school. You've also got to be kind of smart to run a medical school. I think you have to be really smart to run a whole bunch of schools. You have to be super smart. So I, think, I think Brian is officially the smartest person we've ever had on Passage <laughs> to Profit. I <think> so. <laughs> Basically, I have three medical specialties. One is as an internist, which is pediatrician for adults, a specialist in non-surgical treatment of adult care. Second is as a clinical pharmacologist, which is really the study of drugs, meaning pharmaceuticals, not illicit drugs, in people, um, human studies. And third is as an epidemiologist, as Richard was asking about. And epidemiology is, is by definition, the study of distribution and diseases in populations. So what it means is distribution of disease, meaning how commonly diseases occur and determinants, meaning what are the causes? The irony of the pandemic is people now know what an epidemiologist is. Uh, we used to walk around with t-shirts that said, no, I'm not a skin doctor um, <laughs> because people sort of assumed epidermis epidemiologist, it means, but no, an epidemiologist is, is someone who really studies disease in large numbers of people. Historically, it used to be primarily infectious disease and the spread of infectious disease. The other big branch of epidemiology is referred to as chronic disease. So cigarettes and lung cancer, uh, cholesterol and heart disease, hypertension, heart disease, those are all 
epidemiologic studies. The irony is when I went to public health school and got my epidemiology degree, I was literally taught, this was at Berkeley at the time in the late 1970s, I was literally taught infectious disease epidemiology is a dead field because we know it all. We have solved infectious disease if people would just do what people are supposed to do. That was while HIV was cooking in San Francisco across the Bay as yet undiagnosed. And as we've certainly learned since then, many times over, most recently COVID, but certainly plenty of others in the past, and there'll be plenty more, more in the future. Uh, and infectious disease is, is is a real problem and will continue to be a real problem and pandemics will be as well. So what got you interested in epidemiology? I was always interested, you know, even reading novels as a kid, I was interested in epidemics and reading about spreads of epidemics. But I was also always interested in the cause of disease. Why does somebody get sick and somebody else doesn't get sick? What are the actual causes? And epidemiology is really detective work. It's sort of discovering cause. And and actually, there are plenty of police precincts who have called epidemiologists in to help with detective work. I was at University of Pennsylvania before I came to Rutgers at the head of epidemiology there. And I used to get called all the time about clusters of disease, you know, 10 cancers in this school. Why? Can you come in and do an investigation and try to explore why? And inevitably, it didn't even make sense. There were 10 different cancers, different cancers at different causes. But the whole question of the detective work, you're talking about about Sherlock Holmes uh, before, the detective work underlying figuring out what the cause of disease is in a permanent way, as opposed to just a criminal who, when you catch, you put in jail, was something that had interested me for years and years. But I think the biggest reason in many ways, Richard, was accidental. I found I was interested in drugs, so therefore I wanted to be a clinical epidemiologist. Most drugs, we really don't know the effects of in large numbers of people. We study them only typically in 500 to 3,000 people prior to marketing. We don't know the real effects once they go into thousands of people and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions. Again, the whole vaccination and COVID stuff was was all about that. That requires studying large, large numbers of people in order to find out what the real effects are in the population. Brian Strom, Chancellor at Rutgers University, will be back with more Passage to Profit right after this. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearheart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearheart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed, and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit GearHeartLaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now back to Passage to Profit. Once again, Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Special guest, Brian Strom from Rutgers University, who knows all things about epidemiology and 
just has science pouring out of his ears, but a warm and charming person. <laughs> anyway, Kenya, we were talking during the break about some heart condition. So please ask your question. Yeah. And we were talking a little bit uh, during the break about myocarditis. Did I say it right? You did. Okay, great. So Good we job. were talking, yeah, so, which is an inflammation of the heart. And we sure. were talking a little bit about the vaccine earlier. And, and there seems to be a little bit of a pattern, particularly with athletes that I've seen in the news lately, where there has been this overexertion and some association to heart inflammation and people having side effects. So could you talk a little bit about what myocarditis is and if there is any association to the vaccine? Sure. So myocarditis, by definition, as you can tell by the name, myo means muscle, cardio is heart. Anything ending with itis means inflammation of. So it's inflammation of the heart muscle. People assume physicians know Latin. It's not true, um, but it, but it's a. <laughs> but we like we do like to talk in code, so laymen get impressed inappropriately and unnecessarily. So myocarditis is inflammation of the heart muscle. The vaccines for COVID are incredibly effective vaccines, and incredibly safe vaccines. But one of the very rare side effects they do have is inflammation of the heart muscle. It is seems to be more apparent, particularly in young men, which is part the reason it's picked up in athletes. As part of that, there have been studies of Big Ten football players uh, and athletes, and that's where it's been picked up. What we don't know is the in almost all cases, myocarditis goes away by itself and has no long-term sequelae. We don't know yet here because the vaccine is new. But I think it's important to emphasize the disease itself causes myocarditis more commonly than the vaccine does. So people misunderstand this risk and say, oh, I don't want to get vaccinated because I might get myocarditis. Well, you're more likely to get myocarditis if you don't get vaccinated. The other thing that I think is hurting the message getting out about these vaccines and COVID and everything is that not everybody gets it. I mean, some people could go stand next to somebody and inhale their whatever and not get COVID. Catch and, them passionately? Yeah, and not get COVID. And that is that is the mystery that you try to solve with epidemiology, right? So yeah. do you have any ideas why that would uh, we, happen? There's all sorts of things. I mean, we certainly know risk factors for people more likely to get it, more likely to get it more severely. Age, obesity, diabetes, Im immunosuppression, all of those are, are true. And the, you, know, you have arbitrary cut points like people over age 65 and, and are higher risk. But why immunologically some people get it and some people don't? I mean, you know, my wife and I just went to the theater in New York for the first time. Um, we saw two shows a couple of weeks ago for the first time since the pandemic started. We sat there in the theater, of course, wearing N95 masks, but 75% of the audience wasn't wearing masks. We went home and two or three days later, she got sick. I didn't. And I didn't get sick from her. Why? It wasn't COVID. Maybe it was flu. And, you know, flu vaccines are much less effective. They're only about 50% effective. So maybe it was flu. She had the flu and I didn't catch it because my immune system beat the flu and she didn't. But there's a lot of work underway to try to understand. If we knew that, you know, one of the things that would be wonderful to invent would be a permanent COVID vaccine. Yes. So you don't get like a permanent flu vaccine. So you don't need to get it every year. Uh, accordingly. But right, if so we knew the key thing that caused some people to get it and some people not to get it, that's what you would vaccinate against. I do want to turn away from COVID a little bit because part of the reason we've asked Brian Strom to join us today is because of all the fantastic work that he's done 
building the Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences organization, because it was really a merger between Rutgers and UMDMJ that I think began about 10 years ago. And you took a bunch of sow's ears and weaved them into a silk purse, so to speak. So can you tell us a little bit about that and where we are today? I understand that you're approaching your 10-year anniversary and you're still there. Hi. <laughs> and you're still there. So tell us about that process. Yeah, I'm not sure it's a silk purse yet, but it's getting there. Yeah. Um, that's that's exactly where we're headed. Yeah, it's, you know, UMDNJ was the largest medical university in the country. It's massive, but everything very disconnected. It did a really good job of the whole being less than the sum of the parts by keeping everything. It even has two medical schools. And at one point, the president of UMDNJ said everyone north of a certain line wasn't allowed to collaborate with people south of the line. I mean, crazy especially in science, to be able to say that we're all in one state. I mean, they're only 20 miles apart. It's 20 New Jersey miles, but it so means meaning lots of traffic, but, but, <laughs> but, 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 but it's only 20 miles apart. All of that came into Rutgers, one of the biggest universities in the country now about 10 years ago, as Richard talked about, and creating the chancellor job that ultimately attracted me to come here from the University of Pennsylvania. And, and what I've really done through the years is really tried to reverse some of that. My focus has been the mantra, the, the first slide and the last slide of all of my talks is to build one of the best academic health centers in the country with an Amazon One. The idea is to knit it together. It is huge. And we have the potential to build enormous strengths build, building together with you know, multiple schools, you know, multiple institutes. You know, Richard gave the list of them at the beginning of the show. And the ability to synthesize and to bring all this together. You know, New Jersey used to be the home of innovation and the pharmaceutical industry. A lot of it has left, but there's a lot of innovation still going on in New Jersey. And the idea was to build us into an organization that would be receptive to that. When UMDNJ and Rutgers were separate. You had the clinical operation here, the research and especially basic science research operation here. They were separate from each other. We have the advantage of all being together, all under one roof at a time that healthcare is undergoing enormous, enormous change and the incredibly rapid change. And we are really, really well positioned for that as we move from what is called a fee-for-service healthcare system, where you wait till people get sick. When they get sick, they go to the doctor, the doctor treats them, they go back home. Typically, go they go back to the same behavior they were doing before and get sick again. And you have this cyclic process, no prevention, no attempt to prevent disease. We have a fantastic nursing school. We have a fantastic school of health professions. We have a fantastic school of public health, all under one roof. And to take advantage of, you know, again, as I talked about, I'm a general internist. Most of what I did clinically in my career, you didn't need a physician training to do. Nurses or physician's assistants could do it better and much cheaper. And so the goal is really to build it all together, synthesize it all together. We've dramatically increased the amount of research and innovation that we are doing on, in the process. All of the deans, all the institute directors, they're all new. They're great people. We chose the best people from across the country. We chose people who enjoy working with each other, who have a good time, and people who recognize talent. And you basically provide them the structure, provide them the resources they need, and get out of their way. Let the magic happen. You know, in addition, we've created personal incentive systems, promotion systems in academia, all aligned in order to try to reward innovation, reward driving things forward, reward growth. Our grant funding, our federal funding, was growing at 10 or 20% a year. Two years ago, we grew 40%. We thought that was a COVID bump because of the, all the money available for COVID. 
then it would have gone back down. First year, quarter of this year, compared to first quarter of last year, went up another 35%. That's excellent. And you're using this money to do research. And I don't think people connect the two necessarily, but we have a friend right now who is very ill, trying to stay alive long enough for a new drug to come out, new treatment to come out to extend his life even further. And these are the kind of places where this stuff comes from. That's exactly correct. Academic medical centers are where the research comes from and the linking between research on one hand and clinical care on the other and bringing the most state-of-the-art care is is exactly what we can do and others can't. When the J&J vaccine was developed for COVID, we were the number two recruiting site in the world. Number three was Columbia, not Columbia University, the country of Columbia. Wow. Wow. And that vaccine, those different vaccines made all the difference in whether we're able to go to the grocery store without fear now, or we're huddled in our houses still, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, is what an amazing success of medical science to be able to take basic science work that was done over decades before this, and when it was needed, bring that basic science to quickly develop vaccines, test them in people. And over the next few years, you're going to see that same technology now used in lots of other vaccines and treatments for things like cancer. Because now that we know that technology works, it'll be used in a lot of different places to try to develop new treatments. Well, we have to take another commercial break, but before we go, I just really want to say thank you for your work. What you and Rutgers have done is amazing, and we're glad that you're here. Brian Strom, Chancellor of Rutgers Biomedical and Health Sciences. More Passage to Profit right after this. Hi, I'm Lisa Askley's Inventress, founder, CEO, and president of Inventing A to Z. I've been inventing products for over 38 years, hundreds of products later and dozens of patents. I help people develop products and put them on the market from concept to fruition. I bring them to some of the top shopping networks in the world, QVC, HSN, Evine Live, and retail stores. Have you ever said to yourself, someone should invent that thing? Well, I say, why not make it you? If you want to know how to develop a product from concept to fruition the right way, Contact me, Lisa Askeles, the inventress. Go to inventingatoz.com, inventingatoz.com. Email me, lisa at inventingatoz.com. Treat yourself to a day chock full of networking, education, music, shopping, and fun. Go to my website, inventingatoz.com. Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. Time now to turn to our Power Move segment, Kenya. So for Power Move today, we are going to be talking about the city of Newark and Jeff Hines. The pandemic has created a great opportunity when it comes to industrial real estate, and Hines just bought a Newark distribution center for $127 million. And the 738,000 square foot facility is located in an opportunity zone. So if you're not familiar with what an opportunity zone is, they are economic development tools that allow people to invest in distressed areas. And they are designed to help spur economic growth and job creation in low income communities. So he and the city of Newark are our power move. Wow. Excellent. So it's a warehouse. So there's some businesses in there already. There's some storage places in there. There's actually, I think there's Iron Mountain Coffee in there. So it's going to be large companies that are going to create jobs for some of the folks that live there in the, in the city. So it's in development. So there's a few tenants now, but they plan to expand and add more companies to the facility. And that's great. I always thought Newark had so much potential. And it does. I'm, I'm glad to see that things are moving forward there. I'm aware of other projects. 
projects too that have been taking place in the area. So um, let's keep our fingers crossed for a bit of a revival. And now it's on to my charming better half. She's got a whole bunch of projects. So what are you going to talk about today? As you know, anybody that's listened to this before, I have a startup. Uh, was called Fireside. I changed the name to Blue Streak because of various trademark reasons, etc. It's a video directory of small businesses. It's a services directory and it's a directory based on the new normal. So for instance, we're talking about how if everybody gets a vaccine, you can go do what you want, but here we all are on Zoom, right? So this directory is based on short videos of professionals. It's not location-based, so it will be the first directory that's not location-based. And it's business services that use a short and long video. My other one, so we got a kitten. He has this medical issue and the vets are having a really tough time trying to figure it out. So I started a podcast with a friend who does cat rescue and is really connected with the cat community. And we're putting it out there to the cat community. Has anybody ever had a cat that's done this before? What fixed it? And we've gotten a couple answers. So we have our podcast. We've uh, released the first two podcast episodes. We have guests on there. And it's all about cats. And it's really fun. I'll probably be doing that till the day I die. You know, that that's good. <laughs> if anybody wants to hear me. You will, you will be a true cat lady as you work your way through this cat journey. I would like to introduce our first presenter with a startup, Eric Corm with AIM7, A-I-M-7. And... I love the soreness piece of this. So, Eric, please tell us what you have. That sounds dangerous, but please continue. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. Prior to starting AIM-7, I spent about 16 years in the NFL and in college football. I was a sports scientist and performance director. And about 12 years ago, I pioneered the use of athlete wearable tracking technology in games. So if you ever watched an NFL football game and you see somebody running down the field and you're like, oh, they're running 20 miles an hour, that's the technology I brought to the U.S. And it helped open a billion dollar market here in the United States for sports wearables and data. Problem though that we had at the very beginning is we had tons of data and no way to turn it into actionable recommendations to improve performance, reduce injuries. I actually ended up hiring a former NASA propulsion engineer when I was at Florida State, where we pioneered this, to help me use this telemetry data, organize it. And after about a year of working with it, we were able to use it to reduce our injury rate by about 88% when I was at Florida State. That led to this proliferation of this technology. So late 2020, I spent you know a long time working in this field. I turned my eye to consumer technology because millions of Americans are facing a huge problem right now. Actually, over 100 million Americans own wearables, like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit or a Garmin, because they want to change their behavior. Think about it. They want to sleep better. They want to exercise more. They want to be more resilient to stress. But wearables don't change behavior. They just measure it. These devices show you data, but they don't tell you exactly how to use it so that you can feel and perform better. And so AIM7 is turning that data into personalized recommendations for your mind, body, and recovery to help you look, feel, and perform better. So one of the things that you're alluding to is we uh, pioneered some technology or a strategy called fluid periodization where we can take anything you track on your device and we can tell you the precise type intensity and duration of exercise that your body is able to adapt to today. This dramatically reduces injuries, prevents burnout, and rapidly improves fitness. We did the foundational research on this when I was at the University of Kentucky. We can also assess your acute psychological state, and then we send you in-time interventions to help regulate stress in the moment. We give you very simple tools to help improve your mood. This is all backed by research. 
And then we give you personalized sleep and napping recommendations. But then we take it a little bit step further. After seven days, we analyze all your data and we identify that one area that you need to put your focus on. And then we help you create a small goal. And then we open up content and really this content catalog and we've become your personalized masterclass for that thing. So my doctoral work was in sleep and stress resilience. So if we notice that sleep is an issue, it's not good enough just to be like, hey, your Apple Watch says you're sleeping five and a half hours a night. You're like, well, gee, thanks. What do I do to create the conditions for restful and fulfilling sleep? So then we identify the issue and then we give you the educational tools in very short format. We built this for busy people. So everything is 90 seconds to two minutes long. So Eric, let me ask you, this is yeah. really amazing technology and mm -hmm. you've got, I, I have a, a wearable, I have a Garmin watch, right? Yeah. So I, I do exercise when I'm in the mood, and, <laughs> which is about once a month. When but the I, trainer shows up. When, when, when the trainer shows up. And, but it's really amazing that you've taken it to the next step. Can you give us like some examples? Sure. So one of the things that we do is people, you know, do all sorts of types of exercise. They walk. Maybe they do the elliptical, maybe they do resistance training. We will query all the data from your wearable device. And then we combine objective measures of stress from the device plus subjective measures. So we ask you every day in a short 20 second survey, how you're feeling in the areas of your sleep, your mood, your stress, your soreness, because research is very clear that your perception of your well-being is directly correlated to how your body is adapting to stress. If you apply the right math, this works very well. So then what we can do is we can say, oh, you're something like heart rate variability is just tanking, your heart rate's elevated. Maybe today's the day you like to do resistance training. Today's the day maybe not to do that, but we noticed that you love to do the elliptical. Hop on the elliptical for 20 minutes and stay in this heart rate zone. And so now what we're doing is we're matching the precise type and duration and intensity of exercise. So you're not, as you alluded to earlier, making yourself so sore that the next morning you can't get up and walk. And so we've, we've demonstrated over time with elite athletes and in general population that when you apply this methodology, when you fit the precise type, dose, and intensity with what you're ready for, you prevent burnout and you help people improve their fitness. Excellent. Dr. Strom, do you have a question or comment? Yeah. For years, we had treadmill exercise bike and we found they made great clothes hangers. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so, so the question that I'm leading to is, how do you get people to use it? My yeah. three and a half year old granddaughter has something she calls an Apple Watch. It's not. But what it does is it goes off every two hours mm -hmm. as part of potty training. So there's a sound that she can't ignore. And her parents yeah. can't. More importantly, her parents get, can't ignore. So having done these analyses, how do you get people to use them? Now you're getting into the real IP of what we're doing. It's called behavior design. Ultimately, you want to help somebody design a behavior that they can take action on. And so we have a very unique behavior design model. And I'll tell you one of the things that we don't do is we don't want people relying on motivation. Research demonstrates that motivation will let you down every single time. So we scale the recommendation. Some days when your mood is down, you're not feeling great, we, we deliver the smallest, tiniest recommendation to get somebody across the action line. And so there's unique ways that we do this. The app is not just an app. We also use text messaging. Um, we have a little goal setting feature. So after one week, we're like, hey, you know, the government standards are 150 minutes of moderate intensity or 75 minutes of vigorous exercise. We are trying to get everybody in America above the government standards for exercise, sleep, and mental health. And so what we do is we identify where you're at and then we create a small, tiny micro goal. And then every day your recommendations are linked to those goals. And we, we've demonstrated that we can move people along a continuum 
over a long period of time. And so we have a very unique way we're doing this. And that's part of what makes AIM-7 so special. Wow. So Kenya, do you have a question or comment? I do. I think this is so interesting. So I, I'm a fitness trainer outside of all the other things Let's that I'm go. doing. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I agree with you. The motivation factor is super key and it does like fizzle out. So if it's not motivation, right, uh -huh. then what is the other thing? Like what's the other flip side to keep people going? All right. I'll give you a little insight. So my world was in human performance. I worked with the best in the world. And so I went out and recruited those folks just like you did, uh, Dr. Strom at uh, Rutgers. So one of the people that's on our board is, um, and he helps he helped develop our behavior design models, Dr. Peter Haberl is a senior sports psychologist for the US Olympics. One thing that we have noticed and we've learned through the literature is that when emotion enters the equation, you don't feel like doing something, that's when people quit. So we have a process that we walk you through the first week of being in the app and we actually teach you how to identify your values. And then we link your values to the actions that you take. So for instance, you want to uh, walk more and you value self-care, or maybe you value your family. You know that you're overweight, your blood sugar is elevated, and you know that you need to get in shape for your kids. Or maybe you value family. So when you take that action, we link that action to your values. And then what happens is it creates more sustainable action over time. So you're, and we link, we have a very unique process of how we do this. But when people learn how to link their actions to their values, and then they can lock into internal reward systems, which leverage dopamine, you're able to consistently pursue difficult goals. People think that dopamine is the molecule of reward. It's not. It's the molecule of motivation and drive. So if you have two people running a marathon, one person's just thinking about the finish line. That's a long way to run, by the way. You have another person that's just thinking about making it to the next small little mile marker. And then when they do, they internally go, hey, Eric, great job. You're doing really good today. You get to the next mile marker. Guess what happens? There's neuromodulators that, well, we don't have to get into all the science, but it, it affects dopamine, adrenaline, and other things like that. It literally keeps you moving forward from an ambulatory perspective or movement, but also from a goal pursuit perspective, it allows you to continually pursue that difficult thing. We both, I got a PhD. It was like taking a consistent beating for six years while I was working <laughs> a full-time job. But every time I did that one little thing, I'd be like, Eric, you got this. You can do this. You, you accomplished that one little task. So when somebody does the thing, maybe it's they spent 10 minutes working on a mindfulness intervention that we sent them or a gratitude journal because their mood was down. Then we link that to a value and then we teach them how to tap into their internal reward mechanisms. We've had some phenomenal results with this product in a very short period of time because we were a bunch of scientists that did this with elite athletes. And we're like, okay, how do we take this amazing data data because Dr. Strom, you mentioned earlier about this fee for service healthcare. Ultimately, where we're going, and you know this, is that the most common preventable diseases in America, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, about 50% of those, the CDC says, are preventable diseases if people would exercise, eat, sleep, not smoke. And so a lot of these things, you have these powerful wearables on your wrist right now. If you can leverage that data to create action that drives people to act in their own best self-interest, we can help a lot of people. So ultimately, that's what we're motivated by. So Eric, I love what you're doing, and uh -huh. I love the process that you're doing. And I think you're obviously on the right track. But I always wonder about fear as a motivator. People don't talk about that anymore right? That's also a strong force. And it seems like when it comes to motivation or behavior change, we're focusing on the positive, which I think is a good trend in society. But I also think fear of diabetes or fear of heart 
conditions could also be a motivator. And I'm just curious, has your research kind of touched on those subjects at all? Or is that just an unhealthy way to motivate people? In marketing, people will try to flee from pain before they pursue pleasure. That's kind of a marketing scheme, right? But if you really want to change somebody's behavior for the long-term, fear will only get you so far. Okay, so I do have a Fitbit. Yeah. And I do use it to try to get my steps. And in most days, I'm pretty good. But like, I'll be in the grocery store walking down the aisle and I'll check my Fitbit and I'll say, run. These devices are unintelligent. Sometimes I get really annoyed. Like my Apple Watch, love the company. That's the first device we brought in. But it's like telling me to stand up and I'm on a podcast right now. You know, it's like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm with you though. I get the, from the marketing piece. Nobody wants this big, scary noise to motivate them. That's Mm -hmm. very unpleasant. But I do think that that could be interesting in certain ways. Yeah, I mean, there's something to it. But I think when you talk about long-term goal pursuit, nobody pursues something that's very, very difficult unless they're trying to flee from a a country that's in war but we're talking like personal goal pursuit like you don't pursue a very difficult degree because you're afraid you pursue a difficult degree because you want to maybe you have impact on somebody you don't pursue a relationship because you're afraid you pursue a relationship because you love someone so i would rather tap into love and and deep-rooted values of who somebody is for long-term behavior change. Fascinating, because the way you're, you're describing, I did say our exercise bike sat there with clothes, but no longer, we now have Peloton. And the Peloton instructor <laughs> that we use, and our the Peloton instructors often talk about, do it for your family, do it for you. You know, think about your family, you're the same kind of positive motivation yes. that, that, that you're talking about. And what you're doing is you're putting it into an app, personalized, to work long-term, not just when you're on the machine for 45 minutes. Huh? Absolutely. And for things like mental health and sleep, and that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to make it a very personal process that's relatable to the individual and to their goals and to their values, because those things are enduring. So Eric, I have one last question for you. How yes, how do you factor a person's diet into this? Because I know mm-hmm. personally, like if I eat a banana before bed and get all that magnesium, I think I get a little bit better sleep, right? Yeah. So there are five pillars. If you want to zoom up from a 30,000 foot level, what AIM-7 is doing is we're helping people become more adaptable to stress. And we teach this. You can actually go on our website, aim7.com. And our first blog, we start, we're starting to outline this whole concept of building adaptability to stress, but it's what I did my research for my doctoral degree on and another person on my team. And there's five pillars for building biological resilience and adaptability. And they're very simple, sleep, exercise, mental fitness, nutrition, and living in community or having healthy relationships. Research is very clear. These things help you become more resilient to stress. Right now we're focusing on three, sleep, exercise, and mental fitness. We're an inch wide and a mile deep on those. Eventually we will add nutrition and eventually we will add more parts on the relationship side because those things are very important. But we found that with people wearing a wearable device right now, these are the things that we can help create action with immediately, especially with the people tracking things like sleep and steps. It's not too much of a leap to go, hey, now we wanna take a little bit further step on this exercise page. We're gonna move you a little bit more towards this standard, but nutrition is in the timeline. But right now we're just focused on those three. Eric Coram with AIM7, AIM7. 
And his website is aim7.com. So definitely go check it out. It may be what you're getting for an anniversary gift this year, my dear. Uh, you're seeking to change my behavior, huh? <laughs> so now we're on to another great invention idea. John Nicholas with East Hampton Shucker Company. All about really nice food and beautiful products, too, if you go to his website. So without further ado, John, please tell us what you're doing. I'm the founder of East Hampton Shucker Company, and I have a passion for oysters. Over 30 billion oysters are eaten every year. I love them. I eat them all the time. After I eat them, I feel better, and they're very good for your, your immune system. They also have a magical property to them. Uh, there's something special in them that uh, other foods don't have. Uh, they make you feel happy. Uh, as a kid, I grew up clamming and gathering oysters with my dad here in East Hampton, New York. However, oysters are challenging and dangerous to open using traditional methods of a glove and a towel. I cut myself many times. Everyone did. Even the professionals cut themselves. Oysters don't want to be opened. All my life, I tried to open oysters, but I couldn't accomplish it. I tried every method and bought every product available on Amazon and everywhere else. None of these products were safe or easy to use. Some were actually very dangerous. I tore these products apart to come up with something better. I didn't give up. As a kid, I grew up tearing things apart to see how they worked. I knew it was a problem I could eventually solve. My goal was to make a product that was safe to use for people at home and for the hospitality industry. That was my primary goal for my new invention. Speed came later. I designed my new devices with the premise of having your hand far away from the knife as you can. Because when your hand is not there, you can use a sharper, more efficiently shaped knife with more force to open the oyster without the risk of stabbing yourself. It's actually a very simple premise. Just take your hand out of the equation. And I was just so surprised that no one has ever, you know, come up with something this simple to protect people. Thousands and thousands of people get hurt every year trying to open oysters. So after countless versions and prototypes of different materials during COVID lockdown, I finally figured out and I had a lot of free time and I felt like Tony Stark in my basement workshop toiling around. I made a lot of mistakes. You know, I tested different materials. I had to come up with these parts that didn't exist. I had to invent them myself quite a bit of, you know, exploring and trying to figure things out. Kenya, what is your opinion on, on these devices? And do you eat oysters? Are an oysters I, a thing for you? Or I don't. And and honestly, it's just, I don't, I haven't had them enough to compare them to anything. Um, So I'm not an oyster expert, but I think anything that makes life easier in terms of like opening things, I'm, I'm all for that. Very innovative of you to make people's lives easier who do love to eat oysters every christmas eve our family had oysters and oftentimes in college like people would just they do the thing i don't know john have you ever done this where they crack open well it was hard to get it open once they got it open they would just tip it up and put the whole thing down their throat sure that's the way you're supposed to have them i could not handle the texture john is are they acquired taste first of all they're funny to look at you know, but uh, they, and it is an acquired taste, but they do make you feel better after you eat them. So and try not to eat an oyster that's too large. Okay. Sometimes, you know, start with the smaller oysters, medium-sized oysters. I tend to avoid the larger oysters for the experience and, uh, you know, start from there. 
but they are extremely popular. My oh, family yeah, loves them. One thing I wanted to get into with you, though, is that your pieces are beautiful. Like, you have one that's made for yachts, right? Yes, we found that uh, there's a high correlation between boaters and oyster lovers. So we're developing more handles and products that uh, appeal to boaters. Uh, we found that fishermen have the highest correlation towards oysters, but uh, boaters extremely high. Chancellor Strom, do you are you an oyster eater? I, I adore oysters. My wife hates them because the texture, exactly yeah. the con consistency, exactly what, what you were talking about. But I love them. Generally, they come pre-shuck. But your description about shucking the oysters and cutting yourself, one of the things my wife does in cutting bagels or anything else, we actually got these gloves that were almost like suits of armor in order for her to use um, as she cut things. But then, of course, that got in the way of cutting. So if, if you could come up, extend your, your product to be able to cut bagels and cut other things as well, it would be useful mm. preventive medicine. And as far as like the pre-shucked oysters, like for the real aficionados and the purists on the boats, right? They want to take them out of the ocean and put them down their throat in like 30 seconds That's correct. Later. Right. And they, they prefer also not to have anything on them, you know, just to drop a lemon. That's the, the best way to have them is right out of the ocean. I prefer the East Coast oysters. They have more flavor and they have the high mineral content. But I like the oysters from the West Coast also. You should try different places. Each oyster tastes different from where they're grown. And that's because they are in different parts of the sea and they get different types of water get, flowing through them. They get, get different, different water. They get the minerals from the land differently. They have different algae. They're grown differently. There's all sorts of uh, factors that make, uh, even oysters that are grown close to each other will taste different. There's nothing wrong with uh, trying them and see which one you like better. I'm a little inspired now. So next time we go to, a, I, if, I'll ask for maybe like one oyster that's really small. <laughs> Yeah. So John, to move more into the business piece of this, where are you selling these and how are they selling? Are you selling a lot of them? We're just about to launch the product. We've just finished the manufacturing and we will have them available on our website very soon. And so is that your primary marketing strategy is really to rely on the website or? We have our first goal here is to do a, a local launch basically to do a blitz out here in the Hamptons first by going to the seafood markets, to going to the restaurants, to going to the home furnishing stores, the hardware stores, the bait shops, farmers markets, and all the different associations that are here that relate to oysters. So well, we want to capture this market first before we start expanding to the city and other places. Is there a big boating community there? Are you going to go? Oh, there's a huge, together? huge boating here. There's a lot of oysters that are available here from all sorts of farmers. They can pick them up. They're also on the uh, North Fork of Long Island. There's a tremendous oyster industry up there too. So when do you expect to get your first units for sale? They should be available by the end of January. Nice. Just in time. Right? That's great. And how many different designs do you have? Uh, we have four different designs. Are they all protected by patents or patent pending? They're all, yes. I actually invented 46 different devices. Well, we're only going to be selling four of them now. We do have a nice pipeline for other products in the futures, but uh, we've determined that these four are what we're going to go out with. Uh, we have uh, Model 1, which is a, a teak version. We have a Model 2, which is an all-plastic version which we'll be releasing later on more for the QVC and Costco market. Uh, model 3 is a metal bracket. It has a, also has a marble base and a beautiful handle to it, all metal, stainless steel. And Model 4, which is our commercial version, which also does clamps. 
and it's food grade for restaurants. Wow. Wow. 46 different oyster shuckers. I did not think <laughs> that having that many different designs was even possible. That's pretty amazing. And we have to wrap the segment up now, John, but keep them coming and you will have to come back on the show when you have a chance. Go to John's website, easthamptonshucker.com. That's easthampton, S-H-U-C-K-E-R.com. We'll be back with more Passage to Profit right after this. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearheart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at gearheartlaw.com. At Gearheart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. At Gearheart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearheart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed, and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit GearHeartLaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now more with Richard and Elizabeth. Passage to Profit. Time for Noah's Retrospective. Noah Fleischman is our producer here at Passage to Profit, and he just has a way of putting his best memories in perspective. Just recently, I heard a couple of younger folks talking about something called retro. I didn't know what they were talking about. I thought maybe they were referring to a new international currency. My life's always been about nostalgia. When I was a child, the world was composed of Richard Nixon, shag carpets, hippies, wide lapels, flowered shirts, sanitation strikes. My parents, well, they were all busy moping around talking about how great life was 10 years earlier. John Kennedy, gray flannel suits, pencil ties, clean sidewalks. Their parents? Forget about it. They were really living in the past. All they wanted to talk about was the days of running boards, wooden ice boxes, going to the movies to see Mary Pickford and Buster Keaton. There was so much fascinating dichotomy between the ages. Every generation had its own definition to it. And there weren't really that many years in between. Nowadays, who knows? If you took me into a time machine and sent me back 20 years, I wouldn't know what time it was, and I probably wouldn't care. But you know what? That's not going to stop me from embracing the all-new retro movement. Matter of fact, this shirt I'm wearing, completely and totally retro. In fact, I can remember the good old days when I first took it out of the box and wore it last Wednesday. Passage to profit, and we're winding things down. It's been an amazing show, though, hasn't it? I mean, we have gone all over the place in terms of topics today, so we've really covered a lot of really interesting things. And Brian Strom, if you haven't had a chance 
to hear the show, go check out our podcast. You can get it anywhere where podcasts are available. And you may want to listen to this show two or three times because I think it's got a lot of good content. Our podcast can be found tomorrow anywhere you find your podcast. Just look for the Passage to Profit show. So now it is time for our group discussion and the question of the day. And we're going to start with you, Dr. Strom. What would you most like to see invented? Pie in the sky, anything that you could use yourself. That's easy. Uh, A way to clone myself. (laughs) (laughs) Only when I mentioned that idea to my chief of staff, his response was, please don't. (laughs) (laughs) More work for everybody. (laughs) Okay, Kenya, what would you most like to see invented? Something that you could use? Maybe a time freeze machine. I feel like maybe that's already in the works, but I feel like we never have enough time. And I'd love to just be able to freeze write what I'm doing, where I'm at, and then go run and be able to do something else and then come back. So maybe a time freeze. That sounds good. Eric, what about you? I'm starting to get to my mid forties. And so some type of like nutraceutical or therapeutic to help with uh, like restore cartilage and uh, the space between those joints again would be phenomenal. John, what do you want? I'm really looking forward towards autonomous cars. But I would like to see an autonomous sailboat where I can just go out and have a nice cruise and not have to worry about anything. Just really be peaceful. That's what I would look forward to. Yeah, I was thinking a fountain of youth. We all want that. (laughs) For me, I would like a teleportation machine. Like my daughter is going to be on the beach in Hawaii in the next two hours. I would love to just be able to zip myself to Hawaii for an hour, lay on the beach with her and come back home and get back to work. I'm sure she'd love that too. (laughs) anyway i guess it's time to wrap things up so on the show today we had the most amazing chancellor brian strom chancellor of rutgers biomedical and health sciences and you know what i loved about having him on was like you could talk to him about medical stuff but it wasn't like you were talking to some big doctor even though he could be that so if you want to find out more about him you can find him on the rutgers website about Brian Strom. It's S-T-R-O-M. Thank you, Brian. It's great. And then we had Eric Coram with AIM7, AIM7.com. He has an app that uses data from your wearable devices to recommend health decisions for you. Really operates much differently than the devices that we know today, like Fitbits and Apple Watches, et cetera. It's definitely worth going to his website and seeing this device. So if you wanted to, you could develop a little electroshock therapy every time you raise your arm to put some food in your mouth. (laughs) I think that would be a helpful invention. (laughs) And then we had John Nicholas with the East Hampton Shucker Company, who has made these incredible devices that shuck oysters. They're really beautiful and They're for every level of oyster shucker person out there from the casual person to people running a restaurant. And you can find those on EastHamptonShucker.com. And buy his shuckers because if he sells those shuckers, he's got 46 other shuckers to sell. So we want to see them all. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's it for us. We need to sign off for this week, but we will return to this station next week with another episode of Passage to Profit. Before we go, I'd like to thank the Passage to Profit team, Noah Fleischman, our producer, Alicia Morrissey, our program director, and Mark Wilson, our syndication manager. Our podcast can be found tomorrow anywhere you find your podcast. Just look for the Passage to Profit show. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember, while the information provided in this program is believed to be correct, never take legal steps without checking with your legal professional. 
That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again with another episode of Passage to Profit. 